I'm Austin. And I'm Anna. And And this this is Grits. Join us in reclaiming what it means to be girls raised in the South. Mm Mm-hmm. So let's get gritty. (laughs) All right. We're back. So uh, on this episode, we have... uh, Overpromise, under delivered. I think we're entering our third or fourth week, but Anna and I have been very busy, uh, as you'll find out. Uh, we've got a great pod ready for you, locked and loaded, as I said last time. Got to come up with some new words. Mm-hmm. Um, but we talked about this on a previous episode that um, about millennial burnout. But what we're really going to do a deep dive into is. Uh, as Anna put it so eloquently, how the chronic problem of millennial burnout is exacerbated by emotional burden and decision fatigue that comes with being a woman in the South. So, lots to unpack, but it's not abortion. No. So, I feel like this will be maybe some... Still pretty controversial. Is it though? I mean, there's there's a generational divide and the gender stuff will probably annoy some people but well the pro pro pro-life movement will hopefully be behind this pod so um all right so updates well we've been sitting in this closet for about two hours (laughs) (laughs) and and i haven't seen each other in a while uh and i'm sure for some of you that have been listening uh i probably haven't talked to you in a few weeks if not months so apologies it has been insane uh, I've come up for air a few times, but, uh, please know that I'm alive and I'm in Anna's closet. So, uh, all right. So my updates, uh, a few weeks ago, I was lucky enough to see Elizabeth Warren. She's on the campaign trail. She's talking about rural America. She's hitting up Memphis. Uh, and so I drove with Kristen, who's been mentioned on the pod, uh, for her birthday. We drove down to Memphis toward the Civil Rights Museum, which was uh, fitting for for the day, um, the theme of the day. And eventually we drove over to a high school in in the east side of Memphis uh, and stood in line, finally got a seat. Uh, I was was making the moves. I was schmoozing the crowd, running around, you know, giving out my indivisible business card as I do, you know, at the fast food line at (laughs) Chick-fil-A. Lots of times, but I uh, was working the room and out of m- the corner of my eye before Elizabeth Warren entered the room, got on stage, uh, I saw Tammy Sawyer. And so for those of you who don't know, Tammy Sawyer is running for mayor of Memphis. She is a community organizer. Uh, she would be the first black woman female mayor of Memphis. I was redundant, woman female uh, of, of Memphis. And I was fangirling very, very hard. Couldn't help myself. So she was sitting in the front row waiting for Warren to walk on stage. And I, she was in the middle of a conversation. And I took her arm and basically said, Oh, hi. Hi, Tammy. My name is Afton. I'm the uh, statewide organizer for Indivisible. It's really nice to meet you. I'm really excited. I hope the group gets involved in your campaign. Not realizing that Mr. Elizabeth Warren was the one that she was talking to, (laughs) sitting next to her, having an intimate conversation. So apologies, Mr. Elizabeth Warren, for uh, interrupting your conversation with Tammy Sawyer, but it was a moment that apparently I had to steal from you. So apologies. Uh, I also had a really fun night out on the town with some of my political operatives in in Nashville. So typically on Fridays, I either, I I do laundry, I do chores, and then I go to bed at a hot 8.30. And so my friends texted me 
saying, hey, we're going to go out at 8.30 to have some drinks, which provoked a very violent existential crisis that I thought, hey, I'm almost 30, and... I've been going to bed before 9 on Friday, so I decided to have a little fun, went to the Lipstick Lounge, which is the notorious, uh, famous lesbian bar in East Nashville. It was really fun. Uh, I have not been to a lot of lesbian bars, so this was, I was, I was pretty, I was pretty intrigued. It was, it was, um, I, I sang Dolly Parton, 9 to 5, and then my two friends who are in the political world. And I got up, we were all blondes, uh, and we sang Goodbye Earl, and it was a big hit. And I was shaking shaking my tail feather, dropping it like it was hot um, to the Dixie Chicks, and everyone was loving it. Apparently Lipstick Lounge, pro Dixie Chicks, as I would have imagined. Yeah. So that was really fun, so thanks for the night out. Um, and then I have just been running around Tennessee, doing my thing. <laughs> as one says, organizing events. And um, so we talked a little bit about the terrible bills coming out of the state legislature, our last episode. We have a particular one that is promoted, written by our Secretary of State, Trey Hargett, uh, in retaliation for the Tennessee Black Voter Project registering over 90,000 African-American voters in 2018. So he felt like that was just too many too many African Americans voting in Tennessee elections. So he has written a bill that would make it illegal. Uh, it would result in a Class A misdemeanor for a person illegally registering voters, uh, or it would be a $10,000 fine for an organization uh, that hadn't participated in the training what training, where the training would take place, it's still unknown. But I was grateful because the Equity Alliance, who's been the most vocal organization about this bill in, in really aggressive ways, which I really appreciate, because I think in the South, we tend to tiptoe around what we're really feeling. And the Equity Alliance basically just said it. And so they asked us to participate in a press conference, which I was really grateful for. I like to be in the background. I know that's hard to believe because of my karaoke antics and mostly loud volume, as my mom says. Uh, but I do like to be in the background. So this was uh, a bit of a toss-up for me to go into uh, to speak at a press conference. But what was really funny is that, so Tequila, who's the co-founder of the Equity Alliance, she is just, <sighs> she's such a fiery speaker. And I just, I... I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. And so she she referenced a lot of my talking points, which was just in her, you know, she just knew the material a lot better than I did. And so then I stood up and I said, well, uh, as Tequila just said, I will repeat uh, this, this, and this, and this. So, uh, and then lastly, I a few episodes ago, I talked briefly about, I was really proud of my rural groups and grateful for them. I think it's difficult and at times numbing to be a progressive in rural in the rural South. And I was fortunate enough to travel to uh, Greenville, Tennessee, where one of my rural groups, Indivisible Green County, hosted a healthcare forum, which you and I talked extensively about. And it was about a local hospital merger. Well, of course, the hospital merger happened because we haven't expanded Medicaid and hospitals and corporations are trying to cut costs. But what I saw was just, and this is something to unpack at a later date, but probably 200 people in this you know, packed auditorium, uh, an Art Deco old 1930 theater, 1930s theater in Greenville. And I would say the majority of those people voted for Trump. But here you had a hyper-local issue. You had 
a nonpartisan group that wasn't the Democrats, the Republicans, hosting an event that was community-led, community-recruited, and ended up being a lot about healthcare policy. And by the end of it, you had all of these Trump supporters when the speakers were talking about policies that looked like looked a lot like Medicare for all or Medicaid expansion without really saying those words, they were applauding and they were on the edge of their seats. And it just, it was such a realization that we have so much work to do in the South talking about these issues in a way that aren't pedantic or using words that we in these special interest healthcare advocacy spaces talk about these things because that's not what it looks like in rural Tennessee. And so I think yeah, there's just a lot of work to do. So I, I had a blast and I learned a lot and I'm just excited what that group does. All right. So Anna's got some big news. If you didn't already see the, I think I added it. I added the photo as a story. Oh, really? I yeah. Didn't that. Um, so in case you missed the big news, I'm engaged. It's <gasps> 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 <laughs> 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 just I wasn't there. <laughs> So it happened in Chicago. It was beautiful. There will be more. Was it windy? It was windy. Classic. Very, very windy. You can see that in the in the photos that will be posted later this week. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, so Alex and I are going to be married (gasps) after four and a half years of dating, and it'll be like. Are you gonna have a great pineapple themed wedding? Of course. Like that's the color. The color color scheme is green and and yellow. Does that work? <laughs> we'll get Alex's approval later. Okay, sounds good. Um, and the week after we got engaged, we went to our first college wedding. So we have a, a couple friends who were married um, shortly after we graduated, but we were uh, still poor and looking for jobs, so we did not go to their weddings. <laughs> and so this was the first one post-college with all of our friends coming and staying together and um so we toured up in orlando which is like my new favorite place it's so trashy but so great like in the best way possible did you get a spray tall tea spray painted tall tea no or is that panama city pcb no you don't even know the terminology i'm sorry i'm not a local like you But yeah, we had a great time. It was a beautiful wedding. Um, super happy for our friends to be married and looking forward to many more weddings. So it was super fun to like be celebrating our engagement with college friends that I hadn't seen in quite a long time. And also the last few weeks have been so busy at work. Um, so you and I actually crossed paths. Yeah, we actually saw each other, um, on the clock. So right after Afton's press conference that she helped organize. I had organized a press conference with the help of Representative Gloria Johnson. She, shout out! Yeah, major, major shout out for her answering my frantic <laughs> calls and voicemails and texts. And I was actually in Orlando when I planned like 75% of the press conference because, you know, nothing's ever fun unless it's last minute and frantic on a Saturday morning. So. I'll just say, if you need a press conference call, you know the right, you know the griddles to call. Yeah, really. So this came together. Um, anything that could have gone wrong did for like three straight weeks. Um, <laughs> so I was very happy that the morning of the press conference, we actually had a front page story in the Tennessean that we had pitched and um, it all just came together. We capitalized on Afton's <laughs> press outreach <laughs> um, and the Equity Alliance uh, and all the good work that they did. And Basically, we were like, just Anna, stay in the room. Just stay in the when room. When Anna says that, I just said, 
hey, are, you, are y'all going to stay? And, and they said, maybe. And I said, cool. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, yeah, I definitely did my part. Yeah, we were, we part. were definitely taking advantage of the scheduling more than anything that I did. Um, <laughs> <Athens> proactive <laughs> willingness to wrangle press. Thank you. Yeah, it was, it was great. I don't and think we've even posted the selfie. We'll post that as a promo. I actually have a really cute anecdote from this. So you're not allowed to bring posters into or anything bigger than eight and a half by 11. You can bring guns, but you can't bring in an eight by 11. Because, it, it, you know, it's like terrorism or something to bring anything bigger than a piece of paper. Terrorism death by paper cuts, people. <laughs> so I had printed this poster. Originally, we were going to have the press conference on Legislative Plaza. And... Um, and I had gotten this poster printed, and that was another saga. We had to cancel it, like, four times because <laughs> we can't get our crap together. Partially, Ten Care's fault. I mean, it's complicated. Do not blame the state they Medicaid took, okay, program. Okay, so we had, to, we had a data point on there. Oh, they took God. the data down. So then, you know, we didn't have it. And so they said that is, there was But I think this is worth mentioning to the pod that you've trolled them so aggressively <laughs> that they took down their... It's been there since I started my job. Like, they took never down their website for data because TJC <laughs> was mining the data and it made them look really bad. Hilarious. Oh, yeah. So we had to, we had to pivot on the poster from FedEx um, so office. what did you do? Uh, so I have this huge poster, two foot by three foot. And we were actually called the lobbyists in our office and asked them to run down and uh, bring the poster in because we thought maybe a lobbyist would have better luck or we were going to, like, call a staffer or something. But then I was like, you know what? Who's going to turn me down? Although I have had posters oh. taken and thrown away for me in there before. But anyway, I was like, I'm just going to try. It's a chart. Like, who's going to say no to a chart? So I walked in, and they were a little suspicious, but they let me go through. And the second security guard grabs it from me, and he, he just wanted to look at it. They both they both looked at it for, like, a really long time. But this guy looks at it, and he looks up at me and goes, that's not good. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Tennessee like, State Trooper. And then, and then hands it back. So... Roughly, probably more than this, but about 128,000 children have lost their health insurance in the last couple years. Since, Subtle. Yeah, yeah. It's not, not a big deal at all. Um, and that's why the uh, state trooper was shocked. Um, I would just like to chart. say, let the record show that the welcome Anna received is not the welcome that I receive on a <laughs> weekly basis. Last time I walked in, they go, there goes trouble. I was like, I'm, I'm, I'm going to the bathroom. Like, I... <laughs> Fine. What would you call that? Your what type of privilege is that? Where you get to walk into the ledge and I get criticized and chastised for being a um, troublemaker. The fact that like my jackets are like a kid's large and I'm blonde <laughs> and look like I'm twelve. That's probably okay. That's not the response I was expecting, it. but I appreciate it. They're probably like, what? Could, what could she do with that poster? Is she really gonna take someone out? <laughs> And it was a chart, okay? It was a chart. It was a chart. All right, yeah. fair enough. All right, fair enough. I think the ones I brought in before, like, they're killing... <laughs> the legislators are killing people. I'm also bringing in, like, eight-foot banners, like, <laughs> trying to stuff them to the bottom of my of my backpack. They're like, why is this so heavy? I'm like, what? It's my costumes. Um, <laughs> it's all, your costumes. Oh my your costumes wigs. I'm bringing <laughs> I need a I need a budget just for wigs. That was the only reason I took the indivisible job because they offered me money a for per wigs. diem for wigs, <laughs> a per, per legislative diem for wigs. Woo! All right, wow, that was fun. Mm-hmm. Anna and I've just been talking. We haven't seen each other in a while, so this has been fun. Okay, so 
as as we stated, we are going to talk about millennial burnout, but we we thought this was a very relevant topic considering Anna and I are borderline on the brink of exhaustion every week. <laughs> um, true story. I have gotten mono three times, probably four, because I just overwork myself too much that my immune system shuts down. So, um, no, I have not been making out in the closet with people. It's just <laughs> that I um, work too hard. So it's like the, the interview question when <laughs> when you're getting interviewed for a new job. What's your biggest flaw? Well, I work too hard. Like, <laughs> But it's a real thing. I mean, it's a yeah. real thing. You and I are always working weekends. I probably clock in 70, 80-hour weeks. Um, so, and balancing our... Our relationships and friendships ends up taking a toll. So, so I thought I thought we I try to provide always the historical context for our pod topic, and I've chosen a few pieces that I have read as well as uh, women that I would like to highlight that I think illustrate the the paradox between Southern feminism and labor. So, uh, the first piece I'd like to mention is a little book called Plantation Mistresses by Catherine Clinton, which is I love. Is this a romance novel? So, okay, for the record, when I grabbed it, so it was at my parents' lake house, which, you know, everything goes down there. <laughs> and I think it was Labor Day, and I was tired. I couldn't quite get my Netflix to work, so I thought, oh, I'll just check out the lake house library. So I grabbed this book thinking it was going to be a steamy pilot romance novel from from the gas station. Turns out, hard no. <laughs> uh, and it was a postdoc, which gotta love those uh, published postdoc uh, presentations and dissertations that are. I'm sure you know my dad has a PhD in accounting. Mm-hmm. I don't think I'll ever read his dissertation. Not that I care accounting. Oh God. Side note: Do you know my parents? I can't even begin to tell you. Well, you've, you've, the pod, if you're listening on the pod, you've met my mom. They went one time to the Museum of Accounting, which is apparently Italy. It was like mm. the first conference that they had at the Museum of Accounting. Riveting, I know. No offense, Landon, my little brother, who's also an accountant. Anyways, this was not boring. This was um, a postdoc that I felt was pretty enlightening considering that I had in all honesty, growing up in the South, this very Gone with the Wind, Scarlett O'Hara, as I think most or a lot of is the perception across the country about Southern women during this era. But her argument is that there was definitely Annabella millennial burnout. So millennial meaning that women were married a lot younger back in the day. Um, and, and Annabella you know, pre pre Civil War, and and what what she said is that as you're reading the book, you realize that the mistress of the plantation. Um, so this isn't mistresses, as in you rendezvous at two a.m. You know, at a club in downtown East Nashville. <laughs> this is the the matron of the plantation had really intense responsibilities far in excess of simply taking care of her husband's desires, which was the emotional labor of carrying a relationship back in the day, and immediate family needs. The other duties, I'd just like to rattle off a few of these. Preserving food and taking charge of the storm room. Doling out daily supplies for the main house, as well as to each slave family on the property. Providing winter and summer clothing for everyone. Sometimes even down to supervising weaving and knitting. Additionally, she was the maker of soap. Cure of hams. <laughs> this is my favorite. Preserver of morals and religion. Classic. 
That's going to be my epithet. Mm -hmm. Nurse of the sick, teacher of her own children and the slave children. And so this is just a, a, a brief excerpt. But what I realized is that this these were really daunting tasks that the mistresses of these plantations had to deal with. And you have to understand that their husbands were gone all the time. They were in charge. They were handling households and estates of 30 to 50 plus people. It was exhausting. And imagine the manual labor back then. And so what just was really striking was this perception that I had about Southern women back in the day, that they had it really easy. They were sipping sweet tea on the veranda, wearing these corsets and fanning themselves. And that was not the case. It, it totally blew that perception out of the water. Um, one small note that I'd like to make is that the author, she believes that white mistresses were actually in more bondage than the slaves because she argues that literally no other woman, and I quote, or a community with whom to share her experience. The Negroes, in contrast, shared a common background going back to roots in Africa, their daily work, and a local subculture with fellow slaves. I do not have my postdoc in Southern antebellum feminism, but I would have to argue that uh, that is absolutely not true, and that the slave culture, even though there could have been camaraderie and familial similarities that is absolutely not true and and there was definitely white privilege that she is not um, identifying in her book so then after the civil war so women sought to redefine their roles within the nation and their local communities and as we as Anna and i have discussed on a previous pod uh, the abolitionist and women's rights movements simultaneously converged and began to clash um, in the south both black and white women struggled to make sense of a world of death and change. In Reconstruction, leading women's rights advocate Elizabeth Cady Stanton saw an unprecedented opportunity for disenfranchised groups, women as well as African Americans, Northern and Southern, to seize political rights. So as Anna and I discussed on a previous episode, the abolitionist movement is arising at the same time as the suffragette movement, but there were a lot of suffragettes that were very racist and wanted to divorce their movement from the abolitionist movement, which is honestly why, you know, we passed the the Voting Rights Act and all of these in the 1960s. It took, it took, <laughs> what, 50, 60 years for all of this to pass because we decided that it wasn't worth our privilege to utilize our privilege um, to promote the rights of others. So it, incredibly problematic. Uh, Southern women also grappled with the effects of war. Anna and I, before the pod, were trying to figure out a uh, solid statistic to provide to all of you listening. I've heard it was one in five men that were killed in the American South, but I don't, once again, we're not experts. We don't claim to be experts, mm -hmm. um, so leave us a note if that's not no true. No postdocs on Civil War here. <laughs> I'm not getting my postdoc on the God. This is Civil War. No, thank you. Mm -mm. Too much Cracker Barrel to eat and out of time. No, thank you. Um, so Southern women also grappled with the effects of war. The lines between refined white womanhood and degraded enslaved black femaleness were no longer clearly defined. Moreover, during the war, Southern white women had been called upon to do traditional men's wood chopping wood and managing businesses, which we talked about in the um, Mistresses of the Plantation's daily duties. While white Southern women decided whether and how to return to their prior status, African-American women embraced new freedoms and a redefinition of womanhood. So the Civil War showed white women, especially upper class women, life without their husband's protection. 
Many did not like what they saw, especially in an uncertain future with the possibility of racial equality. And formerly wealthy women hoped to maintain their social status by rebuilding the pre-war social hierarchy, which is such a testament to, God, just the perseverance of preserving social hierarchy of white women and that the deep embedded misogyny that is manifested i will say voting patterns because they benefit from white supremacy culture based on white supremacy and and really the patriarchy they further reinforce those structures that actually hold them back from right yeah yeah fulfillment so white southerners demanded african-american women to work in the plantation home and instituted apprenticeship systems to place African-American children in unpaid labor positions. African-American women combated these attempts by refusing to work at jobs without fair pay or conditions and by clinging tightly to their children. So we enter Reconstruction. White women are trying to find their identity. They're obviously trying to reinstate the pre-Civil War social hierarchies. And African-American women are seeing that there is space to and a, a void to fill and they are um, coming into their own without these traditional systems in place. As black families began to amass power and build businesses post-Reconstruction, um, that's when we saw the second Jim Crow, obviously, or the era of Jim Crow. And within this was the global movement to systematically strip power of people of color. And as we know, I just saying that because it should be in a musical about white women <laughs> because they are the worst. And I can say that because I'm a white woman. White women in the South were the number one culprits. So at this time, I read a delightful biography, autobiography, excuse me, by a woman named Virginia Foster Durr. And this was recommended to me by my boyfriend because he, it was actually a book that he had in his library, which I think is even more impressive. But the autobiography is titled Outside the Magic Circle. And the reason that was really fascinating is because Virginia Durr uh, grew up very wealthy uh, from an elite Birmingham family. She went to Wellesley. She was Ivy League. Was Wellesley part of the Ivy League? For women, but when women can go to Ivy Leagues, that's where they went. It's a very good school. Says a Yale grad. (laughs) Classic. Yeah, like when they used to not let us in. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so, and Chris recommended this book to me because she was an organizer. She came from a wealthy family. My family was very well off, but I went to a wealthy school where uh, a lot of the governor's kids went to, and a lot of it's the political elite in East Tennessee, if you will. Uh, and so Chris thought it was it was relevant because she uh, was heavily involved in the uh, civil rights movement and built a lot of her skills during uh, the New Deal with the Roosevelt's. So Virginia Foster Durr was a young wife and a mother during Depression-era Birmingham. She became really active in the Junior League and then for the Red Cross. And so as, as a white Southern woman, she had domestic duties but at the same time it was expected that you would also volunteer which is why the junior league was created so these wealthy women began volunteering for the junior league but at this time it was an acceptable outlet for white women to be to be part of this organization and to be doing quote charity work end quote (laughs) but what happened was is she this was her entree into class relations in Birmingham. And so she donated uh, milk to the Red Cross to be distributed to the poor, and she was out in the streets in Birmingham doing that. 
So then her husband, Clifford Durr, moves to D.C., and (laughs) Clifford takes a a job with the Roosevelt New Deal administration. So you can imagine this new wave, new progressive era, um, and they are in the front seat, and it's really, really exciting. And so... She begins to work with the Democratic National Committee's women's section and our fave, Eleanor Roosevelt, campaigning to abolish the poll tax. Um, She was also a founding member of the Southern Conference on Human Welfare, um, and she worked really, really hard to abolish the poll tax. And that was when her, her understanding of race relations intersected class relations in the South. So her interest and belief in social equality continued to develop and grow, especially as the Durs witnessed social injustice. So after they lived in D.C., they were, you know, in these elite circles with the Roosevelts, talking about these really progressive ideas, the Work Project Administration, you know, all of these TVA, you know, all of these things that people would dub socialism. And I stop here because, true story, you can Google this, (sighs) Eleanor Roosevelt when she came to Tennessee to come to go to the Highlander Center, which also side note, this is the second side note. So Highlander, have we talked about Highlander on the pod? I don't think so. I don't think we've had. Okay. Uh, Highlander Folk School was started by Miles Horton after he went to Europe and learned about popular education models from um, Danish folk schools. And so he brought back this pedagogy to East Tennessee and started his own school And it really started in the labor movement in Appalachia in in the early 20th century. So he brought schools of people there to to teach them. Um, And then as the civil rights movement started to materialize, it changed into a school that brought in, um, they held citizenship schools where they would teach organizers in these southern towns um, how to register voters, how to community organize, how to protest, how to commit civil disobedience. Um, And it was a training school for all of these civil rights legends. And we'll talk about Rosa Parks and her... uh, storyline with the Durs that intersects. But anyway, so Highlander, just this week, a white supremacist walked onto their land and burned their administrative building. And we know this because, one, it burned to the ground, but two, there was a white supremacist symbol symbol spray-painted on the ground. This is 2019. Mm -hmm. In the same week, we witnessed three African-American churches that have been burnt to the ground by white supremacists in a week in the South. Like, this is terrifying. This is 2019. It's terrorism. It's terrorism. It's domestic terrorism. Mm-hmm. So that's the Highlander Center, um, and, I'll, and I'll talk more about that. But it's important to note that... I was like, why did I get all this kick? Oh, Eleanor Roosevelt. So Eleanor Roosevelt comes down to tour the Highlander School, and guess what? What? The anti... What was the anti-communist group back then? I don't know what they were called. Like, what were they called? Trump supporters? Like, Macar- like McCarthy? Sure. Is yeah. That right? Like, his people... I don't know what it was called. Well, people that didn't like it's socialists. Good, good thing to look up. Yeah, conservatives. Sure. Okay. So, people that didn't like socialists, they, they paid for billboards. So, this is the first lady of the United States. They paid for billboards and called Eleanor Roosevelt a socialist and had them put all over Tennessee. Wow. And that's how she, she entered Tennessee and that's what she saw. I would love to be on a billboard. I hope they put a big <laughs> face. They did call me a social social justice warrior. So okay. if I had a big billboard like that, that's all right. That's fine. I'll take it. 
so the Durs come back from the New Deal. So they're in these circles with the Roosevelts. They're learning all these things. They're growing in their progressivism and their understanding of racial equity in the South. And they move back to Birmingham because of caretaking. And Clifford Durr was uh, he was a lawyer that helped the poor and African-Americans in Birmingham during this, this era. And they became known as white Southern supporters of the Civil Rights Movement. What's really something fortuitous, I think, in, in a moment in history is that so they actually paid for Rosa Parks to attend a training at Highlander. I just, I love reading about all this. And so on the evening of of Rosa Parks' arrest in the Montgomery Boy bus cot, uh, the Durs went to the Montgomery jail to obtain Rosa Parks' release. And their involvement continued throughout the court case and the bus boycott. And then on a final note, I just love this. Bill Clinton at her funeral, at Virginia Durr's funeral, said, I was trying to do my Bill Clinton voice. Can you help me out? I can't do it. That's okay. I'm not going to put you on the spot. Mm -hmm. Her courage and outspokenness and steely conviction in the earliest days of the civil rights movement helped change this nation forever. Thank you, Bill. Thank you. (laughs) So women in the South, post-Civil War, um, they, you know, civil rights movement, they're starting to come to terms with um, the racial inequities in the South. They are continuing to... Uh, volunteer, but also having to fill their maternal um, and familial duties as well. So then we enter, skip a few decades, dun, 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 we enter the fourth wave of feminism, which as Anna and I determined is uh, started in 1990 uh, to 2008, for those of you on the pod listening. The fourth wave of feminism. Okay, sure. Or wait, isn't that, that's the third, we're in the fourth. No. First was in the 40s. Second was in the first comes the first wave, second. then comes the second, and then comes the third. Something like that. Something like that. One sure. started in 2008. Anne and I are clearly feminist. Uh, again, postdoc uh, material. Again, we are not experts. We <laughs> only claim to read Wikipedia once in a while. So we referred to on the last pod that uh, women are being put on the chopping block, this legislative cycle, well, in across the Southeast. Um, and so... As women in the South, we are, you know, Anna and I are both working. Women are trying to raise families or trying to do it all. Um, and we're just seeing a lot of inequity when it comes to women in the South. And this is exacerbated by the policies that are being put forth across the South in these still legislatures. So Representative John Mary Clemens, he's from Nashville, he's running for mayor. He sponsored a bill that uh, would enact the Equal Gender Pay Act. Um, and guess what? You can probably guess what happened? It failed in committee. So in the South, here we are. We're having like to reckon. Like, not even on a vote. Like, not <laughs> even on a floor vote. They're like, uh, no, nope, women don't deserve equal pay in the South. That's just where we are. And so that's, that's the, I mean, that's kind of what it feels like right now that, you know, not, not only are we expected to also work and to also raise families and fulfill these societal Southern duties, um, but they're not even compensating us fairly to do those things. <laughs> Everything's fine. No, it's not. And I read a really interesting article about how gender equality affects Southern women most. The study revealed that working women in the South suffer some of the most harshest inequalities in the country, not only in terms of how much they are paid, but how they are also treated in the workforce. And not a single Southern state was given an overall grade higher than a C minus. Dear Jesus. Dear baby Jesus. (laughs) That is just, no, that is not inappropriate. That is inappropriate. Thank you. Uh, For every promising sign for women in the South, there are far too many concerning ones. Yes, I would absolutely agree with that. 
And then Anna and I also talked about this this new definition of the Southern Belle. Um, I stumbled upon an article from Garden and Gun. <laughs> Your favorite? Snicker, Snicker, Snicker. Uh, yeah. Are you a regular I'm reader a monthly of Garden subs- and Gun? I'm a monthly subscriber. <laughs> I subscribe to their podcast, Garden and Gun 2, <laughs> the pod. Uh, but this definition of the Southern Belle and redefining it uh, as a, as a well, Anna and I would like to say as a political act, but really as a product. Um, and so, and as I talked about with the Gone with the Wind and these, you know, old uh, balls and things like that, you have this Southern woman as a, as a product in the South. And, and a lot of millennial Southern women are actually making money off of this as influencers and social bloggers that commodify themselves uh, as a person uh, or their culture and what they bring to the table as a product. And <laughs> they've been making a lot of money and they make a lot of money by playing into these cultural stereotypes about Southern women. And a lot of them make up to six figures, if not even more. Side note, Anna mentioned that at the uh, mention of influencers and Instagram that we should uh, have a podcast episode on the carbon footprint of online shopping. (laughs) I feel very passionately that PR packages and (laughs) online shopping are like a scourge on society. We'll do a deep dive into the Green New Deal. Along with fast fashion and... um, (laughs) We'll do a deep dive into the Green New Deal and online shopping. We should all wave our own clothes. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I'd be... Super strongly. So... Even if Southern women are now working and raising families, societal expectations continue to intensify burnout for millennial Southern women. They may be making money off of this brand. Um, we may be defining what it looks like, but um, we are still exhausted because we're having to fulfill all these roles and expectations of us. Yeah, and on that note, when we were talking about this episode, we kind of had two pieces that um, I wanted to focus on. And what Afton was just talking about really speaks to performative gender in the South and how women are capitalizing off it now, um, but also how it, it, it's a double-edged sword. So you have to fit this mold to succeed in the South to some extent, and it's what it is expected of you, but it's also what's holding us back in a lot of ways. But it's, you know, well, I'll talk about this later, and, and what are these questions that all this information raises for me, and I, I would love to hear your thoughts about what our role in it is and like how we should change our behavior and how we should interact with other people to mitigate, and, and even what's our responsibility to mitigate these cultural issues. And the other thing was the article in BuzzFeed that came out a few months ago by Anne Helen Peterson about millennials as the burnout generation. And so I think it's important just to talk about burnout um, and what it really means. And the way she describes it is when you get to exhaustion and you continue pushing past that. And so... (laughs) And get mono. Yeah. (laughs) And always have a sore throat. (laughs) Um, Just perpetually. Um, I actually threw my back out yesterday and I'm 24. So let's just think about that for a second. Um, yeah, it's it, it's continuing to push past it, and it's not only doing the thing, but it's not even stopping to even celebrate the thing when it's over and just jumping into something else. It's you know I was trying to I was trying to talk to our friends uh, the wedding last week. We were talking about our jobs. A lot of people are doing different things. Some people are in school. Some people are in between 
jobs, um, are looking to transition. And when I was trying to talk about my work, like I actually got emotional cause I was like, I wake up and check my phone. I go to sleep and check my phone and sure I'm not working like consistently 12, 14 hour days every day, but it's just that you're always on. And that the first thing you think when you wake up is I have to check my phone in case I have to be at a meeting early even if I work till 10 the night before. And it's expected of you. Yeah, and it, and it's not, and, and this isn't in my mind that I just want to be the overachiever. Like, <laughs> I'm really not, I'm like a type B person in general. Like, I'm pretty laid back and pretty calm. And I think that's why I can, that's why I am successful in some ways. But at other times I'm like, God, this is emotionally really taxing on me that I don't feel like I can take, that there's no such thing as vacation. And even uh, the article talks about this, but, a vacation or some self-care or a, a bath isn't going <laughs> to solve these issues of financial insecurity, of, like, crushing student loan debt, of no benefits, of every company around you maximizing profits at the sake of people. And it's all operating in this in this atmosphere where only the few can win and all you're doing every single day is trying to optimize yourself. That's all self-care is, is how can I make myself better so that I can keep going? Right. And why right. are we... And like, be a harder worker be. Yeah. Yeah. Not to self-actualize and start yoga, meditation, five-minute retreats at your office so that everyone can be better. No. It's, like, really to make... To push yourself to the limit so that you can mass produce. And even then, <coughs> self-care has become its own performative thing that we right. do. And that we, that we use as a measure of, are you a successful person? Are you taking care of yourself? That's now, a, I don't know, it's so interesting because it's like... And you're expected to do all three. Like, you're yeah. expected to be a Southern woman, like, do your, you know, emotional, you know, provide emotional labor, do domestic yeah. labor, be the best have a friend. job, be the take best care girlfriend. of yourself. Yeah, take care, take of, care, take of, care your, of yourself, take, take care, care of, of other your tabby people. cats, take care of your pug, take care of your hedgehogs. Yeah, do all your chores, <laughs> manage your household, and also be good at work. <laughs> So I was thinking a lot about... And also lean in. Oh, yeah, lean in. Oh, God. Okay, sure. Uh, okay. Um, Hard pass. Yeah, so I think I'll, sh- I'll share some other articles that talk about um, more in-depth about the emotional burden and labor of being a woman and um, managing a household and the decision fatigue that comes with that. But I wanted to highlight how this... Uh, because I don't have a family yet, um, I wanted to highlight how this shows up in the workspace. So I'm sure a lot of people can commiserate with me that somehow women always plan the parties. <laughs> um, Let us not forget the office party planning committee. Perfect example. Yes. For women. Yeah, that really is. Um, and then when the men took it over, it, then it lasted for like Dumpster one party, fire. whatever. But that's not how we should operate. Like, I spend so much time and so much energy boosting morale in the office and being happy and smiling and talk. Anytime anyone wants to talk to me, I'm always open ears. Like I spend so much of my time caring about other people all while doing my job, all while managing my life. You know, it's like, I need a haircut so bad. <laughs> These are the type of things I think about like all the time. I'm like, why am I got a haircut? I lost my license over a month ago and I finally had to block out a time and email everyone <laughs> to hold me accountable to go get a license. Like that's, that's sad. But it's not written in your job description that you're going to plan parties, but like 
that's what we grow up doing and we love to do it well. We love making people hospitable. Right. We love hospitality. We like fanfare. But there is an implicit expectation, I would say. Yeah. So what I've identified is that it seems like men are able to show up at work in many different ways and they're given the benefit of the doubt. So if a man is super angry or if a man is confrontational, they're seen as a ball buster or like someone who's like going to get the job done or like their behavior is excused or rationalized in some way. Whereas women, it's almost like the opposite happens. So where the benefit of the doubt is given to men for women we come in at a disadvantage of, you know, oh, is your, is your hair not perfectly styled today? And are you, you don't look happy. Oh, you look sick. It's like, no one says that. (laughs) No one says that to a man. I've even had a male coworker text me incessantly when I was on vacation about work tasks. And I told him it was someone else's responsibility who happened to be a man. And I kid you not, that coworker texts me back. Oh, I don't want to bother him on the weekend. After I'd answered multiple, and and keep in mind that this was peer-to-peer. We were all on the same level. There was no supervisor relationships between any of us. We were peer-to-peer. But it's the thought that a man's time is more important than a woman. So for millennial women in the South, you know, I think there was a shift with our generation that as more women go to—actually, more women than men now go to college— we finally broke through that last layer of the outright discrimination of women can't do this job and men can't do this job. Uh, I mean, finally, women, yeah. Fi- I mean, and even then, but yeah, yeah, but that's the, yeah. We're yeah. we're finally trying to trying to break through that, and that doesn't mean that there aren't still some some things that Internal need to change department. around that. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we can't outwardly say you can't be a doctor (laughs) to a woman. But at the same time, there's a rude awakening that happens for millennial women when you can't shake gender roles and expectations, even in progressive spaces like the organization that I work at. And since we have operated in this feeling of optimizing, so it starts with parents. First, parents are trying to, they call it intensive parenting in this article. Um, And it's basically where the parent is trying to get the most, trying to maximize the time that the child has, um, you know, instead of uh, free-form playtime, it's preschool and it's activities that are structured at younger and younger ages. So this is not, these are not the parents that send their kids to Montessori school. No, (laughs) no, this is, this is prepping for standardized tests. This is um, the college uh, scandal, mm. the college admission scandal. Uh, and she also references this thing called vigilante parenting, which is basically you are on the lookout for your child. You will do anything. You will avenge your child. This is, you know, you, because there's so few spots at the top for success, especially with um, the way our economy is moving right now um, and with the financial crises that happened um, in the last few decades, Parents are trying to set their child up for the best possible life, which makes sense and is fair. But you're, you kind of grow up with this, at least I did, with this idea of you can win, you just have to try really hard. Yeah. Anything is possible if you try. Right. Um, and, but now there's a disillusionment. And, and why you see so many people talking about socialism and uh, it's not true. So if you actually know political philosophy and, and political theory, like it's not actually socialism, but you see people looking for more social democracy. 
and we're seeing this pushback because it's not working for us. We, we've tried in the system. We went to college. Well, guess what? Now everyone is saddled with debt and they can't accumulate wealth. Which is also inequitable if more women go to college, then more of them will be in debt. Yeah. I mean. And, and yeah, and it's, this was the expectation given to us. If you just follow these steps, then you will have success. But what we're seeing is we're way behind where our parents were at our age. We're, you know, not buying houses. We're not getting married for financial reasons a lot of the time. And we're struggling to make ends meet and we're just told, you know, take the job. It's the best opportunity for you. doesn't matter how much money you make, figure it out, put it on a credit card. It'll all shake out. And, um, we're, we're focused on these ephemeral careers that don't really exist because it's just a way for companies with bigger and bigger profits to continue to chip away at the security that a job offers. Like we've lost so much as employees, Then there's like this overlying narrative from older generations about how millennials are lazy and entitled, which is the most infuriating concept just because we're asking for something that was a foregone conclusion for our parents. So this all gets down to this big, uh, this big conversation that I've heard a lot of, especially from my mom. She's constantly texting me. Did you do this little task? Did you do this? And some things are big tasks. Like I need to, I lease a car. I need to buy my car. I know it needs to happen sometime before June. <laughs> it's going to happen. It's on your list. But she literally brings it up like once a week. And I get it. But, and and I'm sure I have, okay, these are from Christmas and I need to return them. <laughs> these shoes right here. Um, and, you know, it is silly and you kind of think about it and you're like, why don't you just do it? Like, why don't you just run the errands? Whatever. But think about who benefits from running the errand yourself. We're not actually making space and having time for ourselves and the things that, you know, some things are mundane and some things can be let go. But at the other time, on the other side, it's the reason these things are being crowded out is because we don't have the emotional, physical, mental capacity to carry all of these things because we're expected to operate as women in one way. And I wear makeup. But when people say, oh, I just wear it for myself. It just makes me feel so pretty. It's like, no, it makes you feel pretty because other people think that you look pretty. Right. It's about other people's expectations for right. you. And I totally believe that, I believe in presenting yourself well because that's where people's expectations come from and, and feelings about you come from and respect for you. Unfortunately, it's just how it is. But... I think we need to unpack and think about these things, like why we do the things that we do and why we act in the ways that we do and how much of it is self-imposed, which I don't think a lot of it is. Um, And I don't think, I don't believe in victim blaming. So I don't, I don't believe that um, because if I came into work tomorrow without makeup on, which I have before, everyone asked me if I'm sick. Or you must be feeling really I, bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's and I work it, remotely, so yeah, yeah. You know, but but what would you say? What what would you say to our moms who say we had it so much worse? Just than go you? to the post office. We we you know we we dealt with x amount of chores per day. 
plus college, plus raising you, plus we faced worse sex, sexism in the workplace, which is what my mom would say as one of the first female stockbrokers in Minneapolis when she entered the workforce. So what would you say to that in our fourth feminism wave millennial burnout? Like, what would what would be your response to, her, to both of our moms who have said you're out of your mind? Yeah, and I, I definitely get where they're coming from, but I think it's the same as when, you know, the same age people talk about well, it used to be so much worse with race relations. I think we've had progress in how women are treated, but we have to think about it from the perspective of how, in general, things have gotten worse for everyone in our generation in the workforce and how our gender still, despite it's almost more insidious in a way, kind of like, with racism, at least you knew, like, there's certain areas we shouldn't go, and there's certain—it was overt. It was overt. And that's bad. And that, obviously, it's been good that it's changed. But now it's harder to unpack—we see this with racial issues—it's harder to unpack systemic racism when everyone's still fixated on individual. So there's still the systemic issues— and I'll share in a couple articles about how women do carry majority of the housework, even when they have kids and even when they work full time. And it hasn't changed no matter how progressive a relationship is. And it's almost like they have, you know, second shift that's been around for a long time. Women come home and they work a second shift. Right. And that they basically are the project managers for their household. Well, now with an even more unstable lifestyle and environment that we're living in, that extra work and the and the extra expectations about parenting that we've put on and um I think I think it's like it's not necessarily apples to apples, you know. So what would you say? Well, I think in the digital age, it, it, it's just totally transformed, as you said. I mean, we are expected to be on our phones all of the all the time. We are expected to respond immediately. And I also think, if, so for example, you know, my parents, my parents have very traditional gender roles. They do. My mom's a homemaker. My dad is the breadwinner. But my mom also takes care of two households, which if you quantified and monetize how much she does, it's a lot. It's, I think there, I don't, I forget what the article was, but you know, they, they monetized what a homemaker should be making per year. And it was over a quarter of a million dollars considering all they do. But the expectation in the digital age that you are on call all the time, you have a job, you are also beholden to everyone all the, all the time, which I have a very limited bandwidth. I can only handle one person at a time. And yet I am an organizer. So I'm handling a hundred Facebook messages a day, hundred mm-hmm. emails asking a day, people always asking for my time. And it is exhausting mm-hmm. and I barely have time for myself, but it's expected. And if you're, and particularly in the Southern female space, if you're cold or if you, if you don't respond, it's considered not hospitable. Yeah. And that's another thing I wanted to add is, um, I've I've heard this like the about the stay at home mom or homemaker argument with the you know how much they should make and I've heard a lot of men completely scoff at this like very publicly. So my mom stayed at home 
with us because it honestly, at some point, didn't make sense for her to have three small children. So there were child three of us under five. It, it, it would have cost her whatever she would make to pay for childcare. So it made sense for her to stay at home. But she went back to work part-time when I was in sixth grade and then I think was full-time by the time I was in ninth grade. And luckily, my dad um, owns his business and my mom started working at his business. But everyone anywhere close to or somewhat involved in the business knows that my mom like totally runs the show. She's an amazing businesswoman. Sometimes I get sad because I think of what she could have done if she was in a different situation or had the opportunities that I had, because I truly believe that she is very, very smart and very savvy. And now she works her butt off many more hours. My dad does a lot more like physical labor and manual labor, like outside on the own a garden center. But my mom is like the brains behind the whole thing. And, um, yeah, I, so I have, I kind of see both sides of it. And, and my mom would up until I think, I guess, about a year ago or a year and a half ago, she volunteered at very high levels with the PTA. So she was PTA president multiple times, different schools. And she was involved with every district, state, did legislative events at the Capitol and DC. And like, I mean, just ran the show on education and policy. Um, and all for free, all volunteer work. Right. And I, and so when we talk about, we, we talk about her resume and she's on a couple boards now and, but she can be a little less confident about her abilities and everything. But I'm like, look at everything that you've done in your life. You manage household. My brother's an engineer. I went to Yale and graduated and my sister's going to be a doctor. It's like, she did so good. But, but neither but, of my but parents because she wasn't graduated making from college. A quarter of a million dollars a year. Yeah, you yeah, know, and so like, she, but she wasn't able dismissed. to build her own wealth. But at the same time, she is why our family will have generational wealth. Mm. So that is almost priceless that she was able to do that for her family. And I know a lot of women don't have the choice to not work. And so, we, luckily, our family we were able to, to some extent. But at the same time, I see how that held back my mom's career ambitions. And. Yeah, I'm glad I'm glad we've moved away from that, but one thing I think about that is we're trained as women to minimize or erase our labor, especially emotional labor. Because it, I don't know if you've ever had a conversation with a man close to you about everything that you do to make your lives go well. <laughs> that's maybe unseen or hidden and maybe something hits the skids about, you know, maybe they're stuck at work and you made dinner reservations or you've already started cooking or something and you've changed your schedule so that you can be there to cook dinner or be there for dinner or something. It's just an example. But I sometimes unknowingly make accommodations for other people. And then when I get like so (laughs) pissed off and try to explain what, emotional labor and sacrifices I've made, it's minimized to other people or dismissed um, or not understood fully that do you not realize I have 200 things in my head and I'm also killing it at work. And I'm also setting aside time to honor the space that I have with you by doing this and it's not recognized. And it happens all the time. And then it becomes, and then it's expected. And and it's, you're supposed to form a habit around this generous, gracious effort that you made towards someone that took time out of your day and out of your schedule. 
and maybe sacrifice some time for self-care and yet it becomes expected. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think it's just, this is a good conversation to reflect on because nothing I've read has really come to any kind of solution or, or way forward or any suggestions about how to change your behavior well, I think the the ask that I would have for people listening is that if you are, if you identify as a, a in the cultural realm of a female or a Southern woman, uh, that you, as Anna said, reflect upon how you contribute to relationships and really gauge if that is equitable. Because I think we often give ourselves. Um, give to people graciously because that's what we're taught to do from an early age it's part of southern hospitality and 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 i see that in my work i see that with people that i'm close to i see that in how i present myself to strangers but if you're listening i would really like you to take an inventory of just the little things that you do and if you feel like it's inequitable or you feel like you are being dismissed or it is not acknowledged that you have a very candid conversation with that person and you deserve that because that is part of your self-worth and 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 you deserve it yeah i would i would just say that we all need to take up more space and we need to be confident in and work on boundaries. And I know that I, I wanted to say that this is such a privileged point of view. And I'm really like, mm. I know a lot of the stuff that I've said is limited to people with a certain level of financial security, with a certain position to where you can be seeking employment that's fulfilling and that you're passionate about. But also I want to recognize that in those spaces, it's not working. Like it's not working for a lot of us and we need to start sticking up for ourselves and we need to start as we as millennials start gaining leadership positions. We need to start changing the culture for the people below us. Um, and and just a little thing that you can do is that, and I, and I think you, well, I, I think some of the women at your employer where I used to work, that you call out, you call it out on men and say, who, which one of you of the men in the room are going to help us clean this up? Who's going to help us plan this party? Because I think it's just, it's not in their purview. Like they honestly do not notice it. Mm -hmm. And as Anna talked about, we've talked about women and, and the historical context of, of all of, of this discussion. But you know, the fourth wave of feminism, I think is calling out these, what's, what's the, gender form of microaggression gender aggressions yeah microaggressions for gender i mean and really it happens all the time and i think we're entering this new wave where it's become more acceptable to call things out and i would just mm -hmm. hope that for all of you listening that you you do notice them and if you do you know don't bury it and become resentful like you owe it to yourself and the people around you to define your self-worth and to be loud about it and take up space. As Anna said, be like a white guy in a bow tie. <laughs> as was once told and, to me. And on the same note, like with the way we work now that causes burnout, like don't add to it. Don't send an email after seven. Like, yeah, I'm not. guilty of that. And I, and I am too. Like I'm, I'm saying like, because I want to perform and be the best employee, but optimizing yourself I'm using quotes because like we're not robots like what is this but it, 
in the end, like, who's going to win? The company that you work for? Not you. I mean, you may get ahead in life, but to what end? Like, I think we can all have positions that we really are. I mean, they don't, they call it work for a reason. Like it's work. You don't like wake up wanting to work on the same thing. You maybe like have goals that you feel really passionate about and you are excited about, but like human beings are not meant to work 10 hours a day on the same thing in the, in the strict role that someone created for you. And you're expected to perform at that same level consistently all the time. Right. Like, we're humans. And I think we get away from ourselves. That gets away from us sometimes. And also, I think as women, that we need to be more aggressive about the value we place on volunteerism. Mm -hmm. I mean, all of my group leaders are badass females. They're all moms. (laughs) They all are raising families and dedicating 40 to 50 hours to defeating the Trump agenda in Tennessee. And in my role, I want to uplift these women and say, this is, even though they don't get paid, this is, it doesn't matter because this is the value that they are giving back to society. And I think I can be very loud in my role to uplift that it's not just you know, they, they are giving all of them and they are giving more than most of their husbands because they're doing both. Mm -hmm. And I think I can just be more loud about putting value on that work uh, in public spaces, I think is something that I can vow to do. Yeah. Good. Okay, grits gratitude. What are you grateful for? Well, speaking of self-care, I don't do a good job. Um, But I'm grateful for... I'm grateful for my friends that take care of me. Um, I've got a... I've got a neighbor. God, it's like 11 o'clock. This has been, this has been great. We've just been catching up. on Monday. I've got a lot of people close to me that keep tabs and just make sure I'm not falling apart even when I'm not responsive. And even if I don't respond in time, just know that I'm very grateful. I have a, there's a homeless guy that lives on my street named Bobby. He's my close friend, one of my neighbors. Uh, and he's just, he's fixed my car light and he's one time I came home and Frankie our little pug had destroyed my entire house I was on the phone I was freaking out without even asking he came in and helped me clean up took Frankie out we went and got Frankie dog food mm-hmm. um without even asking and I just know that, that I'm just grateful for the people around me that are taking care of me and have my best interest at heart and I I hear you and I'm grateful for you and even though I don't respond to most of your text messages or <laughs> or emails uh just know that I'm grateful and that it's helping me stay alive because I need to do a better job at taking care of myself which will be my goal from this pod grits grits goal so we got a grits gratitude mm-hmm. and grits goal what are you grateful for so I've had a few interactions in the last week where I feel like I've gotten my training wheels off as far as like work stuff and I mean for a long time like it's been good like I feel like I've been given increasing responsibility but like in a manageable way and I feel like I'm growing um, and learning so much but really this last week it was like full steam ahead like you're given you know I'm trusted to not be micromanaged, which I really appreciate. It scares me a little bit, but that people would like be like, yeah, you can take that interview with that reporter. Yeah, you should talk on a call-in TV show for an hour by yourself. Like, I would be capable of doing that. Although, this is kind of like an hour-long TV show. Yeah. So, a little bit, you, a little bit. Grits is prepared to um, But I would actually have to be 
saying stuff that I could defend. And you could be lounging and drinking wine. So. <laughs> uh, I couldn't wear my leggings, so I'm not sure that that's um, going to be on my schedule this week. Uh, but yeah, it feels really, really, really nice to have um, validation. And I don't think that that should be anyone's only source of like faith and trust in themselves. But it really has added to my ability to trust myself and to have my professional confidence grow. And it really is challenging me on the flip side, like because people trust me, I want to perform to the best of my abilities. So it's actually pushing me to do some work that I wouldn't do otherwise. Um, as far as like knowing what I'm, you know, talking about and being on my game all the time. So yeah, I'm really, really grateful that people trust me. I trust you. Thanks. I think all the griddles on the I could be, I, I like, I don't know if, uh, our griddles know me well enough yet to know this, but I am the flakiest person of all time. <laughs> That's so weird. Yeah. I, I don't know why I've always been like, so like on the, per, there's this like four tendencies quiz is basically like, <laughs> how do you handle internal and external expectations? Um, and I'm a rebel, which is like a pretty rare one. I've taken it a lot of times. So I have to like and at first I was like, no, there's no way. Like, I think I'm a questioner, but I'm for sure rebel, which means that I bristle at internal and external, um, expectations and I'm driven by my identity. So I've always identified as like successful rule follower, you know, meeting people's expectations. So I'm able to meet people's expectations, but at the same time, I still bristle and I'm always wanting to bail. Like, I literally always want to cancel, and I always want to back out of everything, and I never want to do So clearly anything. we found the reason she doesn't want to promote the pod in any way. Okay. Because she's like, I need she a way bristles. Out. I need a quote, way out. Bristles. Thank you. Yeah, well, but then I, like, am so happy that I did it, and I'm glad I pushed past. But my natural tendency is to literally want to bail and... Like, I have commitment issues, too, which... That's a, that's a whole other I guess other I'm getting married now. <laughs> no, um, Alex is awesome. He makes me a better person, so that's guess, all it. That's all guess you're in it. No, no, no do-overs. <laughs> all right. Well, this has been quite the pod. Anna and I have... Uh, you realize the, the only people pod. that are going to listen to this, they're either going to be related to us or dating us. <laughs> All the way through. <laughs> so that's about 10 people. Uh, if you're not part of those 10, thank you. Uh, we've got some great episodes uh, that were that are in the... God, it's late. I can't the even pipeline? talk. Are in the pipeline. Thank you. Um, hopefully, we're going to have Dr. Carol Paris on, who's going to talk about Medicare for All and her ongoing uh, adventure with Representative Jim Cooper, who refuses to sign on to it. I'm really excited about that. And then our field correspondent, Julianne comes back from Bali. Bali, Bali, Bali. Bali. So can't wait for the the Julianne excerpts from Bali Gone Wild. Uh, mm-hmm. Maybe she'll bring us back a sarong. That's what I'm hoping for. I hope there's another um, Tennessee themed restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> What if that's her weird thing? She just (laughs) takes pictures at Tennessee-themed restaurants. Oh, my God. She's really excited. So I know they just landed, um, and I hope y'all are well. And and didn't take a—I asked them if they took a Boeing before they left. (laughs) Apparently they did not. So can't wait to see you when you get back. 
All right. On that note, uh, so grateful for all of you. Please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We have, we post about once every two weeks, so uh, make sure you don't miss it. Yeah, talk about burnout generation. (laughs) Social media is the bane of my existence. It's like both both part of our jobs, creating content. Yeah, that's why it's so hard to do it personally um, or for ourselves, for the pod. Um, But anyway, Follow us on those things that we don't post. Share us. Share us (laughs) share us all around, you know? There's enough of us to go around. Well no, there's not. That was the whole point of the episode. Okay, on that (laughs) note. (laughs) Hashtag boundaries. Hashtag boundaries. Bye. Bye. Bye.